Hey everybody, I'm Kai. And I'm Molly Wood. <laughs> what? I and didn't I even love do anything. Kai. I just I love it when anything. he starts the show with a deep oh. Kai sigh. <laughs> I see, I didn't even know. Welcome I to another episode. Know. He just does it. It's like I breathing. Just, it's like it's just like thing. a reflex. Do you know I have very a big reflex. lungs, by the way? That's actually a, a physiological fact. I have extremely large lungs. And when I get lung x-rays taken, they have to do two because it goes like up into my lower neck. It's true. It's true. What? It's true. I, it's true. I have to get two friends taken. I, I have take so x-rays. many questions about yeah. that and i've never had a lung x-ray and now i want to know how the relative size of my lung no wonder the size are so dramatic is all i'm saying <laughs> so, welcome anyway everyone to another episode uh, <laughs> of make me smart the podcast yes. where we get smart together oh about tech and the economy y'all know the same and learn say it with me all kinds of things. none of us is as smart as all of us that's right. Today, uh, we are going to get very smart. I'm actually really excited about this. We're going to talk about the in-depth reporting that one of our very own Marketplace reporters has been doing. Caitlin Esch is the producer of The Uncertain Hour alongside Chrissy Clark. And it is a show that busts the myths and reveals the surprising origin stories behind every season, a new controversial issue. Now, last season... For those of you who are listeners, who hopefully is everyone, hopefully the crossover here is 100%. Yeah, right. Last season, Caitlin went to Wise County, Virginia as this case study for uh, the how the opioid epidemic started back in the 90s and doctors began over-prescribing painkillers like OxyContin. The show uh, broke all kinds of news. Caitlin did some really great investigative mm-hmm. reporting there. And season three of the uncertain hour just began and the team is digging more into this idea of drug epidemics generally to get some sense of of how or or if we can deal with them right and and how you know they end so anyway uh, the numbers are, are pretty stark it's something like 50,000 people a year dying from overdose deaths opioid overdose overdose deaths uh, more than car accidents, more than guns. Uh, it is and has been called a national crisis, which has economic and cultural and sociological and all kinds of implications. It is, according to the Trump administration, officially a national health uh, emergency. It's a public health emergency, which uh, brings a lot of verbiage, but not a whole lot of money to fight it. Um, so that is part of what we're going to talk to Caitlin about. And she's actually here. Hello. Hey, how are you? Good. Sitting there quietly as Molly and I go through <laughs> our spiel. I know. Um, I know. Caitlin's so patient. I know. I know. Um, so look, so let's um, uh, let's assume folks have perhaps not listened to season two last season when you did a bunch of work um, out in Wise County, Virginia. And what I want you to do is literally set the scene. What does Wise County, Virginia look like? Why did you go there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Wise County is in a region that's considered to be ground zero of the opioid epidemic. It's in the southwest corner of Virginia in the okay. mountains, so in the Appalachian like by Mountains. Kentucky and, and all of that, it right? is by Kentucky okay. and Tennessee and West Virginia. Um, so we were there in 2017 investigating the roots of the opioid crisis. And I was going to small county courthouses in West Virginia and in Virginia to dig up some documents that shed some light on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also talking to people who were there in the late 90s and early 2000s when OxyContin came to market and was widely available in the streets. And that is, of course, the most popular and brand name opioid that's out there, right? Yeah. It's it's, it's, it's the one we all know. Right. It's right. the one we all know. Exactly. Right. And so I was talking to cops and prosecutors and doctors about these years um, in the late 90s when you could find it and, you know, you could, you could buy it in the street and abuse it, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this cop I know actually told me about this guy, a, a true 
drug market expert, um, a guy named Joey Ballard, who had been addicted uh, to pain pills and had gotten out of the uh, left the area, got sober. Um, and he was the one who could really explain how local huh. drug markets worked. Okay. Hmm. So um, he had he had left Wise, but he was born and raised there. So I went to meet him where he was living in Tennessee. And um, I met him on his 42nd day off of pain pills, hmm. and he was doing pretty well. Um, he had a new job. He was living with his mother. Um, he was saving money to buy a car. And um, we were talking about that time, you know, the past 15 years of his life, which were spent battling opioid addiction. Um, he kind of represents this whole generation of, of people. He graduated from high school in the late in the early 2000s when pain pills were everywhere. And he sold a little to support his addiction. And so we talked about those years. And we have a clip mm -hmm. from the podcast of him talking about a friend uh, of his and his wife's. Okay. We had just hung out with him. We dropped him off at uh, his friend's house. We left. And then the next morning, uh, she got a phone call. And he died. He was like 20, 21 like right around my age, had just had uh, one baby and had another one on the way. What, I mean, was that like a major warning to you or did it just seem like? It just seemed like a regular day, as sad as that is. And like, it makes you sound cold hearted in a way, but like, it was just, it got so regular there for a while. It's like, all right. So did you continue to do Oxycontin after that? Mm-hmm. We did an oxy <laughs> that morning before we went to his funeral. What has happened since to Joey, since that initial reporting trip? Because when you met him, he was sober. Right. Yeah. So we kept in touch over the next couple of months, and he was doing well, and we put out our podcast last season. Um, and then he just kind of fell off the face of the earth, and he stopped responding to my messages um, he was ghosting me, uh, but we had decided to do this third se season about drug mm -hmm. epidemics, and so I returned to Wise County, um, and I was there on a reporting trip, and I actually ran into him at the county courthouse. He was there to plead guilty to some misdemeanor charges, and um, he had a hearing. I saw that he had had a hearing, and I, I went and met him. And we talked, and he was very candid about the fact that he had relapsed. He, he had returned to Wise County and had started using drugs, mostly meth. Um, he was he had lost his car. He didn't have a job. He was basically couch surfing. Uh, he was at a low, a low point. Hmm. Um, and then a couple weeks later, he actually got arrested, and he has been in and out of jail. And uh, I think we have a tape clip from, from that as well. A collect call from... An inmate at Duffield Regional Jail Facility. You I accepted the charges. Now. So I've got my recorder on, okay? Uh, All right, so how are you? Uh, I'm sitting here on the phone and can't nobody go it. <laughs> and it's heartbreaking. Sitting on a bond of $2,500, he had to come up with 10% or $250 for the bondsman. But he couldn't get in touch with anyone who could pay it. And if he couldn't make bond, he'd be sitting in jail till his hearing, six months away. I don't want, I don't want this life anymore, Caitlin. What do you mean? I, I just, 
just want to be done with it all. I want to be the one more. I was doing so good, I fucked it all up. I don't want to do any spoiler alerts here, but, and this is an episode like, what, five? So people have a ways to wait, but what happened? Yeah. Well, Joey's been in and out of jail, and we do reveal what happens to him in the final episode. I mean, his story is still unfolding. Mm -hmm. But, you know, jail is a place where a lot of people who are addicted to drugs in Wise County and across the country end up. And, um, you know, what happened to him is not uncommon. Um, I talked to one cop in Wise County who said that the jails and the prisons have become the treatment centers. Mm -hmm. But, of course, there's not a lot of treatment in jail um, that just kind of speaks to the resources that are available. In a county like Wise County, law enforcement, until very recently, law enforcement was the dominant response to Hmm. addiction. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of people would tell you that that hasn't worked. It hasn't stopped the drug crisis. Yeah. Does it seem from your reporting like that attitude has changed? I mean, that has been a big critique is that, you know, broadening out the approach to the opioid crisis has been primarily, even within the Trump administration, which talks about it a lot, uh, framed as a law enforcement issue. Yeah. I mean, the regional jail in, in southwest Virginia at Duffield was built in 2015. And in that time, the inmate population has more than doubled. An extension to the jail was built in 2015 so it could house more people. Um, the county's spending on the jail has tripled in the past decade. So that had been the dominant response for many years. And, you know, the opioid crisis there has evolved into a meth crisis. It's now meth that a lot of people are abusing, getting arrested for, getting busted for. Um, and uh, cops and prosecutors will tell you that you can't arrest your way out of a drug crisis. Mm-hmm. They, it, it won't end it. It won't stop it. And the county is starting to do some different things. They have a drug court program. They have a small and new alternative incarceration program where nonviolent um, drug offenders can work off their sentences instead of sitting in jail. And there are some new treatment and harm reduction programs coming online. Um, But I want to play you another bit of tape. It's this woman, Gleema Walker. She's in her early 50s, and she was born and raised in Wise. And her son is battling addiction. When we talked, he was actually in jail, and I asked her how she felt about that. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I'll tell you what I told my son. I think it's a good thing. If jail is what it takes to make you open your eyes and make you see what you're doing, I said, then it's a good thing. My son may be sad to hear me say that, but as a mother, it's it's a relief to know he's somewhere where he's not going to get drugs and overdose and die. I don't want to see him dead like I did my brother. I just don't want to see it happen. And whatever it takes to change him, I want him to change. Tell me about um, Jessica, right? You, you start, I think, episode four maybe with her in court, right? And then she's she's in for, like, check fraud and selling some category narcotics. And she actually gets an alternative sentence. Right, yeah. She was facing, I mean, the charges she was facing ranged from 5 to 10 to 20 years maximum in in prison. Um, And 
she, yeah, those charges were for prescription fraud and grand larceny, right. check fraud, right. forgery. And, and she, there's, there's this wise works thing, right? It's, it's a, it's a, you can work off your jail time instead of actually going to prison, right? Right. And it's, yeah. we find out later she's got a one-year-old. Tell, I mean, tell me how that whole thing played out. Right. So Jessica, um, Jessica's story is a little bit different because she wasn't in active addiction when she right. was standing before the judge. She had gotten out of town, gotten, gotten sober. Um, and found out that these outstanding charges existed. Right. She came back, turned herself in. Um, so instead of jail time, she was sentenced to 1,440 hours of work. Which is a lot of hours. It's a lot of hours. It took her nine months of full-time work yeah. without yeah. pay, without pay. But for her, it beat a jail sentence. She had a baby. You know, she was worried she was going to miss his first steps. She had a fiancé and, and some stepkids. She had a whole life for herself. And um, she had to move back to Wise. She had left the area. She moved back to Wise and started working full-time at the community college library hmm. to work off her sentence. Is she out now? Uh, out of, is she's, she out of Wise? Yes. She returned to North, yeah, Carolina. North Carolina. She's doing well. She's another baby on the way. Um, but mm. Wise Works is this alternative to incarceration program that the county is experimenting with, and it really started as a way to save money, um, jail costs. I mean, mm-hmm. they the county had raised property taxes, schools have been closed and consolidated, uh, coal taxes paid to the county are way down, so they were looking for ways to cut costs. Co- sorry, coal as in coal mining. Coal mining. Right. Yeah. Which which yeah. is not a thriving industry right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and it has saved in the first year of the program. It's kind of like a pilot. But right. in the first year of the program, I think it saved a quarter of a million dollars in jail costs. Right. And then there's all that free work that right. local nonprofits and towns benefit from. Right. You've really been immersed in these people's lives. Like, how different is it? You know, I feel like there's so much that people don't understand about how much, even to the point you just made, how much this affects the way that a city works, the way that a region works, the way that America works, not to mention the the damage to individual lives. Like what's your kind of what's your perspective? How do you feel about this reporting that you've done? Yeah, I mean, people said to me again and again in Wise County that every single family has been impacted in some way. I I didn't find a single person for whom that was not true. Um mm-hmm. and the economy, it seems like every aspect of the economy is touched by it. Either it exists in response to the epidemic, or it's sort of hurt by it when, you know, the workforce is is hurt by it. Um, I talked to one guy who became a cop after his lumber business failed, he says, because he couldn't find sober workers. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was, so it's a lumber mill, right? It's a family lumber mill and he was working extra hours because he had people who were overdosing or who were, who were addicted calling in sick. Right, yeah. yeah or, not, he, or just not showing up. Exactly. He yeah. says he was working 16 hours a day. So apparently becoming an undercover narcotics officer is less stressful. Exactly. <laughs> so so look, so you've been doing this story now plus or minus two years, right? Yeah. Um, how then does this opioid epidemic end, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what you, – you've been reporting it. Give me I your, asked your everyone opinion. that question, yeah. every single person. And one of the most interesting answers I got was that it's the wrong question. Drug epidemics, Hmm. people always use drugs. Um, He said that the question is, how do you stop people from overdosing and dying? And um, a drug epidemic eventually ends. But in the meantime, there are all these things that can be done to stop deaths. 
Um, and Wise County is starting to implement some of those programs. It has the first needle exchange in the state of Virginia. It was very controversial mm-hmm. um, to slow the spread of disease. It gives out Narcan, which is the overdose antidote, mm-hmm. to drug users who are mm-hmm. most likely to be around people who are overdosing. So maybe that's how it ends. Maybe through programs like treatment, harm reduction. Um, but one thing that a lot of people in Wise told me is that law enforcement is not going to stop a drug epidemic. And we've learned that lesson as a country a couple times. Have we? Because, you know, I think there were people who said that in the 80s and said that in the 90s and, you know, and and that there's been so much controversy about whether just say no works and whether you can say to people, like you said, don't use drugs. Um, Do you think that message is is all the way through that harm reduction and treatment are what will work? I think that it's it's interesting to see lawmakers on both sides now rolling back some of the policies that were ramped up in the 80s and 90s, which Chrissy Clark, the host of the podcast, mm-hmm. really digs into in the first half of the season. There's bipartisan support for pulling some of those policies back. So I think that may be an indication. Mm. Caitlin Esch is a producer and reporter on uh, the third season of a podcast she and Chrissy Clark do. It's called The Uncertain Hour. Um, first two episodes out already, right? Is that the deal? First two episodes by the time this one drops? Yeah. Yep. Check it out. It's kind of amazing. Caitlin, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, please do subscribe to the latest season of The Uncertain Hour. It's remarkable, remarkable work. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to hear from you. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back, and this is the part of the program where we do some full disclosure, which is to say, I'm not really here right now. Me neither. <laughs> wait, wait. Where are you? Are you on spring break? Yeah. Like, oh, you're in London, nice. and I'm on spring yes. break. I yes. know. So neither of us are even here. Even right. though we're talking to you, I know we're blowing your minds right now. I know. I know. First first time my mother ever heard me on the radio, I called her uh, on the way home, and she was like, Kai, wait, what? You're on the radio? How can you be on the phone on the radio? How's that happening? It's a true story. It's a true story. Anyway, all of Did which you... is to say, what? Did I what? Well, I was going to say, had I had a fixation, it was like two weeks old now, which is, yeah. did you hear that um, physicists actually meant, uh, managed to send yes. a particle I very briefly that. back in time? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So basically, we are that particle yes. right now. And <laughs> man, I told my son about it, and it blew his mind. Thing, man. You're doing quantum <laughs> qubits last week, and now you're doing 
Photons going stop. backwards. Oh, stop. my God. All of which is to say we're not going to talk about the news at all because it'll be out of date because news cycles move at, wait for it, the speed of light uh, these Amazing. days. Amazing. Uh, and we're going to go straight to the mailbox, <laughs> which is to say your turn. That's right. Hi, Kai and Molly. This is Brent in Detroit. This is Rebecca from Baltimore. It was great to hear comments on my question about GDPR. I wanted to put in my vote. I want to discuss a slightly different but maybe related thing. All right, so two weeks ago in photon time, no, in actual time, (laughs) time. we looked back at the one-year anniversary of Cambridge Analytica, and Dave Church sent us this voice memo. We give information away all the time. Imagine an older gentleman, well-dressed, with nice shoes, going into a store. The salesman doesn't try to sell him sandals or flip-flops. Next time he sees him, He calls him by his name because of his credit card from last time. This is a good salesman. But if his name is Google or Facebook, suddenly he is evil. Excellent analogy, (sighs) Mr. Church. But, but, you know, yes, kind of. It's missing roughly one million steps, actually. Because if the next time the salesman says, oh, sir, nice to see you. You live at XYZ. Your favorite dog is XYZ. And we know that you bought this thing on your credit card 14 days ago. That's a different deal. Well, and I know that because I followed you home. I looked in your windows. I looked at everything you did inside your house. Oh, and P.S. I sold your credit card information to 10 other companies. Right. Like this is not, this is the importance of the bargain that people need to understand. If the scenario that Dave describes here was what was happening, that might be fine. But one million more steps about your actual life and behavior are happening after that. So yes. There you go. Scott Lynch says uh, that after listening to our interview with Shoshana Zuboff, he immediately reserved her book at the library, and he also sent us this voice memo. The real issue of concern here is not that these organizations are spying on you, although that is pretty bad. The real problem is that they're hacking your personality. Thanks for another great interview. Uh, You're welcome, and yeah, I think that's probably accurate, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, to that other point, they're hacking your personality. Yeah. As opposed to just calling you by the name the next time right. you come in. Exactly. Jody Pritchard from Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. Send us this voice memo. Count me in the Kai camp that things are not going to get better. welcome. Right now, Ugh, this administration does not have a coordinated effort to monitor election manipulation. So I don't really see how democracy is going to save us because it's so vulnerable. Ms. Wood, over to you. How democracy is going to say, don't, don't, don't play it. No. I will not succumb. Look, I I should say here, I am a believer in democracy. Uh, I fought for it and served it, and I will continue uh, to be a proponent of it. But look, we got to shape up. We do. But we have to say, I mean, I think as we learned in our Brexit interview, like we have to shape up globally. There's just so many. That was Fantastic. Yeah, really Cannot good. stop thinking about it. Yeah. Low these many photons later. Um, <laughs> Way to stay on brand. But I think we learned that we are in the middle of a historical shift of the type that have happened before. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to lie. I left that interview thinking like, are there times when mm-hmm. we as a society or humanity like pulled up from our nosedive? Right. And then I thought, well, maybe it's just hard to know because we pulled up from our nosedive. So it didn't get that bad. I, I don't know. I do know that change takes a long time. So the idea that we're going to suddenly see all these issues get fixed tomorrow and or maybe without some other horrible things happening in the interim is, I will grant you, a little naive. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm still clinging to my positivity, even though it is raining again. 
All right. Um, it makes it harder for me. I don't oh. know about you. I'm solar powered. <laughs> womp womp. Just um. mad. Okay. It is Make Me Smart question time. What is something you thought you knew that you later found out you were wrong about? Thank you to everyone who sends us their answers in voice memo form. It is our favorite thing. So much so that here is one of you, Karen Kessler, sent us this voice memo with her answer. Check it out. One thing that I thought I knew was that being passionate about what you do, whether that's work or home or family or hobbies or whatever, was unabashedly a good thing always a good thing. Just be as passionate as possible. Mm -hmm. But I've since learned that, like everything in life, it actually has to be balanced with all of the other things in your life, or it will eat you for lunch. Yeah, it's totally true. Totally true. You can love something yeah. too much. You better believe it. I am obsessed with this um, quote by William, William Butler Yeats. It's from that poem, The Second Coming, which is sort of like about the apocalypse, basically, post-World War One. Okay. Um, but I, I have always loved this quote. And even though I, I know that it was meant to be a sign of the apocalypse, I've always took it, taken it the other way, which is it goes, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And yes, okay. Yep. Yeats uses it as a sign of the apocalypse, right? Like right. Th this, this is the poem where the center cannot hold came from that phrase and mm -hmm. slouching toward Bethlehem. It's hmm. very famous. Oh, wow. But I have always thought no, that's totally true. Right the worst like are full of passionate intensity. Like you can't, you know, you can't trust a true believer. It's it's like the Montanan in me. Um, <laughs> and so anyway, all of that is to say, Karen, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, she was answering the make me smart question, which is, of course, say it with me now. What is something you thought you knew, but later found out you were wrong about? Send us your voice memos. Make me smart at marketplace.org. We'll get them on the pod. That's right. Yeah. I never say it with you because I'm afraid that the lag will be too bad and it'll sound totally weird. <laughs> like a, we'll be like saying it in the round. Yeah. Make Me Smart is produced by Sharon Morris. Our senior producer is Eve Tro. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. I feel like we should shout out to Ben Hethcote, by the way, who has been making oh, all yeah, these great video. videos right. and posting them on our YouTube yes. channel, YouTube uh, Marketplace APM. This week's program was engineered by Drew Jostad, and our theme music was composed by Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez. The executive director of On Demand is Satar Nieves, although I'm not entirely sure what that job description means. The senior vice president and general manager <laughs> is Deborah Clark. Ditto there. It's just to He's test people her. to see if they're listening. That's all I'm doing. I know all y'all yes. listen. I'm not sure if they do. That's all I'm saying. Shout out to the end of the pod club. Right. We know who you Here are. Comes. Here it comes. We, do we know who they are? Well, we know like who half a dozen. We people. know some of them because yeah. they tweet us, That's which true. is awesome. We need a hashtag. End of the pod club. But it needs to be like secret so the bosses don't know, like EOTP, end of the pod. Bosses don't listen, so, you know, it's, we're safe. But if they see it on Twitter, they might figure it out. Shh. <laughs> a lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Khreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.